Hey, good morning. Let me say something to all the children, especially those of you who came up here and gave your coins for Christ and the folding money. Thank you. We don't often say that to you, but thank you. Because we love your generous spirit that you're giving. And I want you to know that the money that's collected here, it goes into things like the trip that's taking place this week in the Dominican Republic. Funds like this will be used to do some good for the people and the children at that church, in that country, in that city. So you can look forward to maybe you'll have the opportunity to go on a trip like that one day and and maybe even see some of the stuff that your gifts have accomplished. That's pretty exciting. I thank you for being here again for another set of of studies, discussions, lessons, whatever you want to call it, about the table. And as we get started this morning, I want you to just stop for a second and do a little thought experiment with me. I want you, and and, and, just take a moment here, zero in, I want you to think about a place that you've visited or a place that you've been. Maybe it's a public place, a historic place. Maybe it's a place that's just personal and private to you. And while you were there at that place, you got the sense of something greater than that, just the physical location of that place being there. Maybe it was a sense of awe. Maybe it was a sense of presence, presence of those who had gone before, or presence of those who were going to be there. Just think to yourself and in your own mind, where was that place? What was going on there and what did you sense and what did you feel? I'll share our story. In 2001, uh, during the, the last part of the summer, our family had made a trip, and all of the, our children were, were small, my sister's children, uh, our children. And on this trip, to the, uh, we were going to New York State, and on the way back we thought, let's stop at places in Pennsylvania, see some historical places, and one of the places we stopped was Gettysburg. And, of course, we're telling these little children, I mean, they're all, you know, younger even than most of the kids that were here. We said, look, you've been cooped up in an RV for a few weeks now, and you've been spoiled by your grandparents that are on this trip with you. Please, please, whatever you do, don't embarrass us at Gettysburg, all right? Because this is a sacred place. This is a special place, and, and, and just, I don't want to turn around and see you, you know, jumping off of tombstones and whatever else, you know, just don't. And we really didn't plead with them that intently, but when we all got there and we went there, even the children were aware that there was something meaningful that had happened there at that place, and we didn't have to explain it very much to them. There is a part of the Lord's Supper of the table that has that quality to it every Sunday. And if we don't 
take the time to stop and spark not only our memory, but also our imagination, we may miss it. Now, when I talk about our imagination, I'm not saying that this is imaginary in the sense that it's unreal, but I'm very literally tapping into the meaning of the word imagination, the idea to image something, the ability to see what is not clearly seen at first. Take a place like Gettysburg on a very literal uh, scale. You could just look out there and say, that's a field, there's dirt, there's decomposing bodies, and there are stone monuments. But with our informed imagination, we are able to see that those things represent something more, something that you can't just see with your eyes. This is what's behind the story in Luke 24, and it's one of my favorite passages. I want to share it with you because I think it teaches us how the communion, how the Lord's Supper table functions in this way that it draws us into a reality of unseen truths, but with the eyes of faith and and with the presence of Jesus, we can understand this. Pray with me. Father, I ask that you would be with us in the reading and the hearing of this word. We confess that you are a living God, that you are powerful, you are mighty, and you are real. Father, we confess to an awareness of your presence. Even if we don't understand it, and even if we aren't sure, we know that you have the ability to manifest and to make yourself known. You have the ability to send your Spirit and to be with us in spirit. And Father, we know that this lies within your sovereign power. For you are God, you are Lord, and we are not. And so, Lord, as your children, as your creation, we ask that you as creator might make yourself known to us today in word and table at your choosing as you will. Father, be with me as I tremble to share these words and be with us all as we hear them. It's in the name of the living Christ who is the host at our table and our teacher along the way. Amen. Luke 24, starting in verse 13. That same day, being the first day of the week, the day he rose, that same day, two of Jesus' disciples were going to the village of Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. As they were talking and debating what had happened, Jesus came near and started walking along beside them. But they did not know who he was. Jesus asked them, what were you going on about as you were walking along here? And the two of them said, well, they just stood there looking sad and gloomy. Then the one named Cleopas asked Jesus, I guess you're the only one from Jerusalem with no idea of what's happening there these last few days. Like what? Jesus asked. They answered, The things that happened to Jesus from Nazareth, the things he did and said, showing that he was a powerful prophet 
He made it known before God and all the people. So much so that the chief priests and our leaders gave him up and turned him over to be condemned and crucified. We had hoped that he would be the promised one who would set Israel free. But anyway, it's been three days now since all this happened. Now some of the women in our group baffled us. They had gone to the tomb early this morning but did not find the body of Jesus. They came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who told them that he is alive. Some men from our group went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see any sign of him. Then Jesus himself said to them, So thick-headed, so slow-hearted, why can't you simply believe all that the prophets said? Don't you see that these things had to happen? That the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into His glory? Jesus then explained everything written about Himself in the Scriptures, beginning with the Law of Moses and then the books of the prophets. And when the two travelers, the two of them, came near the village where they were going, Jesus acted as if He were going along farther. They begged Him, Stay with us. It's already late. The day is done. So Jesus went into the house to stay with them. Now Jesus sat down with them and taking the bread, He blessed it. Breaking the bread, He gave it to them. And at once their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. Then He was unseen. They said to each other, Weren't our hearts fired up as he talked with us along the road and he opened up the scriptures to us? And so they got right up, returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven apostles and the others gathered together and they learned from the group that the Lord truly was alive and he had even appeared to Simon Peter. And then They themselves explained what had happened on the road and how they recognized Him in the breaking of the bread. But as they were talking about what had happened, Jesus is standing there in their midst and He says to them, Peace to you. They were frightened, terrified, because they thought they were seeing a ghost. And Jesus said, Why are you so troubled? Why are you filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. See that I am Him. Touch me and see for yourselves. Disembodied spirits don't have flesh and blood as you see that I have. After Jesus said this, He showed them His hands and feet. And the disciples were so glad and amazed that they could hardly believe it. Jesus then asked them, Do you have something to eat? They gave him a piece of baked fish. He took it, ate it as they were watching. Jesus said to them, While I was still with you, I told you everything written about me in the Law of Moses, the Book of the Prophets, and in the Psalms, all that that had to happen. And then he opened their minds to this understanding of Scripture. That's how Luke more or less wraps up his gospel, his first book. Next week, we'll take a look in Acts and see how 
the meaning of this and this appearance and witness of the risen Jesus continues on. But there is something happening here that looks a lot like the memorial of the Lord's Supper, the remembrance when Jesus tells them, do this in remembrance of Me because they're recognizing Him in the breaking of bread. If we're going to appreciate this, then there's some observations that I think might help us. Some things that we need to see as we open our eyes, our spiritual eyes to this. So, three observations. One, I want you to look at the connection. Look at the connection of the Word and the table. It's spelled out here in Luke 24. There's a reason why we spent five lessons talking about the Word before we talked about the table. Because they go together. The Word interprets the table. The Word points us to it. You see, there's the the power and the awe of the risen Lord's presence at the table. And He's the host there. They invite Him in, but when He picks up the bread and starts breaking it, He has just assumed the role of host. He's gone from the the lonely traveler who needs hospitality to all of a sudden he's the one hosting them. And he's recognized in that. He's remembered in that. Because if you compare that, that line, that Scripture in Luke 24 to the way it's recorded in Luke 22, you'll see a lot of similarity. Taking the bread. Giving thanks. Breaking the bread. Giving it to them. In that, you see the same actions of the Lord's Supper table. But we know what it means to break bread and to share it with one another and to eat that bread and to realize that that comes from Jesus because of the Word. The Word that's passed on to Paul, that he passes on to Corinth, that's passed on to others, that Luke records, that he passes on to Theophilus and passes it on to all of us. And because of those words and because of this account we know what the table means in this account in Luke 24 there's the understanding and the discussion of the word there's a conversation going on before Jesus shows up and there's a conversation going on after Jesus shows up and if our conversations and our discussions about the word are just empty and educational, then we miss out on the experience of Jesus in the Word and in the table. You can have conversations about the Word that are purely academic, and they won't do anybody a lot of good. Case in point, as those two are walking along before they encounter Jesus, they're having some sort of discussion. They're having some sort of debate. Now, the words in Greek are pretty strong there, like they're having an argument. In fact, it's a good translation when Jesus asks them, hey, you know, what is this that you're discussing? It really has the sense of, what's all this back and forth that's going on here? Who knows? These two could be having an argument. Maybe they're mad at the others, but all they want to do is get seven miles out of Jerusalem. And so this conversation that they're having, I wouldn't say it's the kind of heartburn conversation that they had and were talking about later. 
Because after they have this discussion with Jesus and he himself opens up the word to them, they're suddenly saying, you know what? Now that we know who it was talking to us, but even when we didn't know who it was that was talking to us, man, our hearts were on fire. The Word and the table go together. That's why we take the time to read the Word, to hear the Word, to meditate on the Word before we go to the table. Otherwise, the table can become an empty ritual without any understanding or with misunderstandings. And without the table, then, then, then where does our preaching go? Well, for many years, we've turned it into a sales pitch. And it's just for those who need to get baptized or tell everybody I'm sorry. And the rest of us just kind of tune out. When will this be over? Because it's time to go home. And that's a shame. Because it's in this experience of God's Word that you and I, I include myself in this, can experience the presence of Jesus who's inviting us into His presence at the table. So look at the way they go together. They both feature into this account. The Word interprets the table, and the table embodies the Word. To have one without the other is to miss something. The second observation is look at the change. I love it that we have these, these two individuals who we know of nowhere else. Cleopas. Who is Cleopas? Well, he's that fellow in the story in Emmaus. Yeah? What else do we know about him? Not much. We don't even know the name of his companion. And we could guess until Jesus comes back. And not a single one of us would know better than anybody else. I think the reason that is is because we can see ourselves in them. If, you know, we've got all these other accounts where Jesus appears to Paul, He appears to Peter, He appears to John, He appears to the disciples, but we know that they're sort of used to that. But here, here's these two travelers on the way who just want to get seven miles outside of Jerusalem, back to their village of Emmaus. And look at what's changed when the Lord invites, or when they invite the Lord, and then the Lord serves them at the table. Before meeting Jesus, they're debating what had gone on, probably mad and angry about it, you know, just rehashing it. Well, if so-and-so hadn't have done this, well, you know, and then Judas, what was he thinking? You know, thought that was a good guy, I know. I gave him some of my money. I wonder what happened to that. Who knows? They're doubting. Maybe this was all just a waste of time. I mean, we thought he was the one that was going to save Israel. (laughs) How are you going to save Israel if you're crucified? It doesn't make any sense. And when Jesus asked them, hey, what's all this back and forth that y'all are talking about? I love the way Luke puts it. He says, basically, they just stand there, sad and gloomy sorrowful it's pathetic what's all this back and forth and you can just imagine them they're sitting there like "Mm." you know they're just so downcast downcast is what some scriptures say but I, i gotta have a word that gets a little more lively than downcast in the words of my grandmother they're just pitiful yeah they're just pitiful 
sad, sad, gloomy old grouches. They'd given up. They'd lost hope. We hoped he'd been the one that would save Israel. I just can't see this as being a moment where these fellows are just so academic. Not if they're having the kind of conversation that Jesus and others actually zero in on it. Well, we had hoped he had been the one that would save Israel, but it doesn't appear to be so. Well, well, on we must go. Stiff up our lip and all that, you know, back to Emmaus. Yeah. No, they're, they're, they're expressing their sorrow and their disgust and their anger, their disappointment. We hoped. I mean, we've been waiting for a rescuer. And by the way, all of their expectations were political. Just a little warning here that when we hitch our wagon to any kind of political hope, get ready to end up like these two before they meet Jesus. <laughs> you, you, don't, you, you don't want to hitch your faith to that. Politics will come and go. Kingdoms will rise and fall. But don't sign up for the wrong fight. They were withdrawn. They were wanting to get seven miles outside of Jerusalem, as far away from Jerusalem as we can get in a day. That's where we're going. A little town called Emmaus. I don't want to be in Jerusalem anymore. Everybody knows what's going on there. And it's just too much. But after meeting Jesus, after meeting Jesus on the way, they're not debating anymore. Now they have a confidence. They're proclaiming. We've got to go back to Jerusalem, tell them what we saw. We've got to go back to Jerusalem, tell them who we met. We've got to go back to Jerusalem. We'd heard these rumors that he's alive. We know that they're not rumors now. They're fired up. Oh, our hearts were on fire within us. You know, and it was when he was showing us all the connections in the Word. It's when he was showing us that in Moses and in the prophets and even in the Psalms and all of it, it all comes together. They're there in Jerusalem with the others expressing joy and wonder when Jesus appears again. They're willing to go back to Jerusalem. Do you understand what the significance of that is? They're willing to go back into the powder keg. Hey, it's dangerous in Jerusalem. People are on the hunt for the followers of Jesus. Don't care. Why? We just saw a man that was crucified and now he's alive. And he still is with us. You can't do anything to us. They're going back. Their hope is restored. And here's an important point. Towards the end of the journey, when Jesus seems to be moving on, instead of being withdrawn, they do the thing that Jesus would do. They obey the teachings. They were disciples of Jesus, and they're obedient to it. And they say, hey, you're a stranger. We don't know you. We were scared to death and maybe even a little shaky right now, but you know what? You need to come in and have supper with us. It's late. The day's about done. You need to come in and eat with us. Let us show you hospitality. That's Christ-like. Look at the change from being in the presence of Jesus. And finally, we look to the Christ. If you look very carefully in this account, their first mention of Jesus is not our Lord. It's Jesus from Nazareth. When Jesus says, like, what kind of things are you talking about? The things that happen. They said the things that have to do with Jesus. 
Jesus from Nazareth? Why don't they say Jesus their Lord? Uh, I could be speculating a bit here, but stick with me. Why don't they say Jesus our Lord? Why don't they say the Christ? Because maybe they don't believe it at that moment. After all, they had just seen their Messiah crucified by the Romans. They saw their hero lose to the enemy. Getting these rumors that his body had been taken from the grave or wasn't there, but they didn't know what to make of that. They were willing to say, you know, he is a prophet approved by God and the people. He's a good teacher. People liked him. He could do a lot. His words had a lot of power. May even have performed a few miracles. We've heard of that kind of thing before in our past. So, yeah, great guy. But he lost. And their hopes were dashed because he didn't seem to do the thing that they had hoped he would do, which was set Israel free. So now we'll just go back to Emmaus and wait for the real Messiah. No wonder their eyes cannot see him or their hearts understand him. Because they don't know how to see Christ. If Christ is just the dead man on the cross, the sacrifice, so that you and I get another chance, then we're not really seeing Christ. We're only seeing a small part of the whole story. And they, all they are looking for is a mighty king like David. Someone who wraps up Moses, the prophets, and David, and all of those promises. And they're not really seeing what it is that they're looking for. Have you ever lost something and you go all around the house looking for it? And then it's right in front of you. But because it was turned over or it's turned around or it's in something or it's wrapped up or there's something slightly different about it, you don't notice it. This is their problem. They've got the wrong idea. Some scriptures say, some versions say that God prevents their eyes from seeing, but that's not in the original. It just says their eyes were prevented. Now, it may have been God doing that, or it may have been their own slowness of heart, as Jesus said. It may have been their own thick headedness but when he breaks the bread the same way he did at that last supper then they recognize it that's the kind of thing that they expect to see Jesus the Lord Christ doing after that in their report he's called the Lord he's called the Christ and he brings peace he can appear in their midst as they're telling these stories The more that they mention he's alive, he's living, these stories connect what the women saw, what Peter saw, what these two travelers saw. And right somehow in the midst of that, as they're discussing it, you notice all of a sudden he's there in the room. And maybe he had been there the whole time. But now this living Jesus can host them at the table. He can teach them. He can forgive them, and He can send them out. Our expectation when we come to this table ought to be, Lord, in some way, I want to see You. Whether it's an inspiration of what this all means, whether this is some 
encouragement to me as I understand your word more clearly, whether this is something that changes me. Jesus is here. If we truly believe that, if we believe that, we claim it, He's here. And since He is alive, He can do as He wills. And if He is Lord and not just some good teaching prophet who came to sacrifice Himself, but truly risen Lord indeed, then we are in the presence of one who has authority. There's two pictures I want to show you. Two of my favorite paintings that go along with this. This is from 1606. This is called The Supper at Emmaus. Now, real quick, where's Jesus in that? Uh, I didn't ask you soon enough. You probably found him by now. But do you notice how different he looks? Yeah. No halo around his head. He's wearing a dark shirt. I've never seen Jesus. I've got a shirt like that at home. I've never seen him wearing, I mean, he's supposed to be wearing a white robe with a red sash, right? This is the second version of this painting that Caravaggio did. In the earlier one, it's much more Jesus looking. Now, he's clean shaven, but he's got the red sash on, and everybody, there's symbols everywhere, and it's bright, and it's shiny, and uh, there's all kinds of, of miracle stuff going on there. I mean, we're just one notch below having a halo. It just wasn't his style. But this one's very different. What's happened? Well, something happened in the life of Caravaggio. When he painted this in 1606, he was on the run because he had killed a man named Tomasini. Tomasini was a wealthy gangster, and they had had a duel. Oh, and this wasn't the first fight that Caravaggio had ever had. I mean, this guy, this guy makes Alexander Hamilton look like a, you know, a, a, you know, a twerp, okay? I mean, Caravaggio's always getting in fights. And this time, now, finally, he's gotten in a fight, and the people who usually protect him can't protect him, and they say, you're going to get, have to get out of Rome. We can't save you anymore. So he's hiding out, and he paints this picture. And I just can't help but wonder, does he have some kind of, does he have some kind of appreciation for those travelers who were on the run? And maybe he was taking account of the fact that he needed to get things right with Jesus, because the way he was living certainly wasn't honoring this Lord whose portraits he painted. But here's that moment, and you see Jesus. He's teaching. He's about to break the bread, maybe. You can see that the travelers are recognizing him. The innkeepers, I don't know, they're extras. They showed up. For the painting. But you can see the difference between the two at the table and the two who are serving. They're just going about their business. Now, remembering this portrait reminded me of one that comes about, oh, 15 years later by Diego Velasquez. Most people have seen this picture and they, they've never seen the background. Because there's two versions of this painting. There's one in the Art Institute of Chicago, but the background's just dark. It's as dark as the other painting we were looking at. But in this one that hangs in an art gallery in Dublin, 
this, this woman who's working there in the kitchen, you see behind her Jesus, and yeah, there's a halo up there in the corner, and you see part of this Emmaus Supper. Now, is that a painting behind her? If it is, why would a painting be in a kitchen? Or does Velasquez want you to see, hey, while that meal was going on at that house, there might have been people like this young woman in the kitchen around it. Maybe she's about to turn around. You can see that in the painting. Maybe she's about to turn around from her work in the kitchen, her everyday work, and she's going to see that moment where Jesus is no longer seen. I love this painting. Because I want to get in on this. And I know that with this story, since it was first told by those two on the road, it has been told and retold and retold so that all of us who hear it, who hear this word, wonder, if I turn to the table and the breaking of the bread, will, will I recognize Him today? Maybe you will. Welcome to the table of the Lord.